Welcome to the Art of Mathematics. I'm Carol Jacoby, and joining us once again today is Joseph Benish, who's Professor Emeritus at California State University. Welcome, Joseph. Thanks for having me back, Carol. Last time we talked about the approximation of real numbers with rational numbers. Now, that was in the 19th century, and a lot has happened since then. In fact, even leading up to this year's Fields Medal. Could you talk about that? I'd love to, Carol. That's absolutely right about the Fields Medal. The Fields Medal was awarded to a young mathematician by the name of James Maynard. One of his great achievements was proving a, re a conjecture that is uh, a conjecture in the theory of Diophantine approximation. Diophantine approximation is simply another term for approximation of real numbers by rational numbers. But leading up to that, there's a long history, and to even understand the statement of the theorem, which James Maynard proved, it's called the Duffin-Schaefer theorem, one has to go back to late 19th century and early 20th century and understand the results of two mathematicians. The first one is Cantor, Georg Cantor, the German mathematician. And the second one is Henri LeBay, a French mathematician. And what they did is not think of numbers as individuals, but rather as collections, or in mathematical terms, as sets. So one takes a set of numbers and tries to say something about that set of numbers. In particular, is it big? Is it small? Cantor had one way of looking at this question. LeBay had another. Let's first look at what Cantor's conception was and how that ties into a question that was addressed in my previous talk, that is uh, the existence of transcendental numbers. Now, what is a transcendental number? Transcendental number is simply one that is not algebraic. And an algebraic number, and examples of that would be square root of two, cube root of seven. These are numbers that are roots of polynomial equations all of whose coefficients are integers. Now that's a lot of numbers. It includes all the, the roots. And it's hard to say whether there's a number that's not algebraic. Leoville succeeded in doing that. He actually was able to concoct a number. It looks very complicated. It uh, is a number, if you were to write it down in decimal expansion, has only zeros and ones. But the ones keep getting more and more spread out. One writes a one and then lots of zeros, and then another one, and then a lot more zeros. It's a really odd number, but what Leoville was able to show is that it is transcendental. It is not a solution of any polynomial equation where the uh, coefficients are integers. Cantor was actually able to show that, taking a very different approach, entirely different approach, which for many mathematicians, during that time, and that's the late 19th century, was very surprising to the point of being shocking, to the point of being unacceptable. His theory was rejected by certain mathematicians, leading mathematicians. What was his theory? He had a new conception of the size of a set. One thought of finite sets and infinite sets before Cantor, but one didn't differentiate between the size of infinite sets. And it sounds very odd to talk about one infinite set actually being larger, but that's what Cantor did. Cantor talked about those collection of sets 
which can be counted. That is, one can say there's a first one, a second one, a third one. The order doesn't matter so much as simply the fact that it can be counted, which seems like a very natural conception. And what he said is that, well, the rational numbers are countable. They can be counted. It seems surprising because there's so many more rational numbers than there are, are counting numbers, counting numbers being simply one, two, three, four, five. But if we just take the rationals between zero and one, we can write them down in succession without missing any, simply by increasing the size of the denominator. One can start with one and then one half, then one third, two thirds, one fourth, etc. And that shows that the collection or the set of rational numbers, at least between zero and one, is countable. So even though you can't do this in the normal order that they would be in, because there's never a next rational number, there's some way that you can put them in sort of an infinite list, is what he's talking about, right? That's right. That's a very good insight. It'd be impossible, as you just said, to write down the rational numbers one after the other if it was done in increasing order because there's always a rational number between any two numbers nevertheless it can be done and consequently Cantor said that because it can be done we'll call these countable that the rational numbers are countable what about the real numbers recall that the real numbers are numbers that can be expressed as decimals what came as a real surprise is that they're not countable. What Cantor said is that they're uncountable. There are more of them. Seems very surprising. What Cantor showed is that if you give me any list of real numbers, one after the other, I can show you that it's not complete. One can say that he proved that the real numbers are uncountable by proving it by contradiction. How does that connect to transcendental and algebraic? Well, what Cantor was able to show is that not only are the rational numbers countable, but the algebraic numbers are countable. And if the algebraic numbers are countable, but the real numbers are uncountable, then there has to be a transcendental number. There has to be a lot of transcendental numbers. There has to be a lot of transcendental numbers. And in some sense, in Cantor's sense, there are more transcendental numbers than there are algebraic numbers, which comes as a big surprise. Not long before, it was really uh, news to the mathematical world that there are transcendental numbers. And here Cantor is saying, not only are there transcendental numbers, but there are more transcendental numbers than algebraic numbers. However, Cantor's approach did not give a way of actually writing down one single transcendental number. It's a very abstract approach. And you can see why mathematicians at the time, some of them were aghast at what Cantor was proposing, but it's well accepted today. Just this whole idea about different levels of infinity. You think of Buzz Lightyear saying to infinity and beyond, and everybody says, well, that's a joke. There's no beyond infinity. But in a sense, there is. There are different levels of infinity, which is fascinating. It's fascinating. It was accepted by some who we might call forward-looking mathematicians, and totally rejected by others, some of whom were leading mathematicians of the day. So it was very controversial. However, to proceed with other questions, 
and Diophantine approximation, again, that's approximation of real numbers by rational numbers. Cantor's theory does not suffice. Let's go back to something that was talked about last time, and that is a, a certain level of approximation by uh, rational numbers, given real number. And that was approximation that was within a certain tolerance, that tolerance being the reciprocal of the cube of the denominator. Decimal numbers do are very useful. They do a very good job at expressing a real number, such as pi, by approximating it by rational numbers, such as pi is approximately 3.14, which is 314 divided by 100. But one can sometimes approximate a number very well by using a smaller denominator. One example that I mentioned last time is approximating pi by 22 divided by 7. One way of measuring how well that approximation is, is by looking at uh, the size of the air. So here we're insisting that the size of the air be less than the reciprocal of the cube of the denominator. That's an extremely strict estimate or tolerance. Can it be done? Well, Leoville's number, which is that number he concocted to show that there are transcendental numbers. That certainly does it. It approximates within that tolerance, whereas other numbers do not, such as the square root, square root of two, square root of five, do not do it. So some numbers can be approximated within this tolerance and some numbers cannot be. Now, it would be nice to have a rule which says, gives a criterion to determine whether a given number can be approximated this well or not. And there doesn't exist this rule even to today. It's not known whether pi, for instance, can be approximated within this tolerance, this tolerance being, again, the reciprocal of the cube of the denominator. At this point, 19th century mathematics reaches an obstacle. What can one do? Give me a, a number. I can't, there's no rule to say whether it can be approximated within this tolerance or not. Some numbers can be, some numbers cannot be. But in general, there's no rule to determine whether for a given number, it can be approximated this well or not. This is where LeBeg's idea comes in. LeBeg had an, another way of measuring the size of a, a set, in a sense more refined than Cantor's. It is called uh, measure theory, and it gives a way of assigning the size, a measure, to a subset of the real numbers, to some set of real numbers. Cantor said, uh, well, a subset is small if it's countable compared to all real numbers. Lebeg would say a number, a set of real numbers is small if it has measure zero. What does it mean for a set to have Lebeg measure zero? Lebeg started with a very simple idea of measuring the size of a set of real numbers. His idea was, well, one could think of it geometrically. One uses a ruler or a measuring rod to measure the size of simple sets. So if, if a set of real numbers is simply an interval, that's basically similar to a measuring rod or a ruler. 
It might be half a meter, it might be one meter, it might be two meters. What if a set is complicated? And complicated sets occur in the theory of Diophantine approximations. What was done prior to LeBay is say, let's just use a finite set or finite collection of measuring rods to measure the size of, of a set. If we go back to rational numbers, the rational numbers between zero and one, as you pointed out earlier, between any two numbers, there's a rational number. So one cannot allow any gap when placing down the measuring rods. And because one cannot allow any gap, these measuring rods have to, when placed on the number line, uh, that part between zero and one, uh, one can not allow any gap between them. That means that if one wants to cover all the rational numbers between zero and one, no gap is allowed. And so the sum of the lengths of all the measuring rods would actually have to be one, which would assign one as the measure of all rational numbers. But they took a more refined approach and said, let's uh, not just use a finite number of measuring rods. Let's allow a countably infinite number of measuring rods. And taking that approach, LeBeg was actually able to develop a very coherent, powerful theory in which the measure of the rational numbers is zero. The rational numbers actually can be considered in LeBeg's theory as very essentially small. Small in the sense it has zero measure. If one looks at Cantor's theory, Cantor would agree. The rational numbers are countable. So it, there's small in the sense of Cantor as well. But LeBeg went one step further. LeBeg's theory, one could actually have an uncountable set that also has measure zero. Curiously enough, an example of that, and the simplest example perhaps, is a self-similar set that goes by the name of the Cantor set. The Cantor set is uncountable. So in Cantor's sense, it's a big set, but in LeBake's sense, it's a small set. It has measure zero. Using LeBake's conception of a very small set, that is a set that has LeBake measure zero, one can return to the original, the previous question of approximation within that extremely good tolerance that tolerance, again, being the reciprocal of the cube of the denominator. And it's not difficult to show, once one has LeBake's theory in hand, that the set of numbers that can be approximated that well has LeBake measure zero. So in a sense, there are virtually no numbers that can be approximated that well. If one returns to Dirichlet's result, where the approximation is more relaxed, it's a reciprocal of the square of the denominator, then every number can be approximated within that. That was the big result by Dirichlet that got the whole, the whole subject going of Diophantine approximation. Now that one has LeBake's measure theory, and in particular the notion of a very small set, a set of measure zero, uh, according to LeBake, one can develop the theory of diophantine approximation without the hindrance that 19th century mathematicians faced. And under the influence of the vague measure theory, diophantine approximation blossomed. 
what was done soon after LeBeg introduces theory was a result by Kinchin, who was a Russian mathematician. This generalized the result that we've looked at with the previous results, with the Dirichlet's result and the result on the re where the tolerance is the reciprocal of the cube. But it didn't generalize it totally. It was pushed further. One can think of it as a game. Instead of looking at or allowing all denominators, allow only a infinite set of denominators. So for instance, one might allow simply the squares to be denominators, one, four, nine, 16, or any collection, infinite collection of denominators, counting numbers are allowed, but one has to specify them, such as, again, the, the squares. Once one specifies the denominators that are permitted, one then specifies the tolerances. This is a very general question and seems well nigh impossible to answer. But the first result was a curious one, which was either it's like uh, Dirichlet's result, where all numbers or almost all numbers can be well approximated, or it's like that other result where almost no numbers can be well approximated. So one doesn't have something in between. Well, half the numbers can be this well approximated and half the numbers cannot. It's either almost all of them can be this well approximated or almost none of them can be this well approximated. Then came the question, well, how do we know? How do we know which it is? In 1941, there was a conjecture due to two mathematicians. Their names were Duffin and Schaefer. They gave a criterion. This criterion had was expressed in terms of a infinite sum. It's called a series. If this series converges, it's one way. If the series converges, it's the other way. It seemed like a very natural conjecture. A lot of mathematicians tried to prove it. It went on for decades and decades with many attempts, unsuccessful attempts. And after nearly 80 years, it was finally proven. In 2019, it was proven by two mathematicians, one of whom was James Maynard. He came from outside the field. He worked in analytic number theory, but it was not someone working inside the field of Diophantine approximation, but he had a big reputation. People inside the field said, okay, this guy is a genius, let's get him. He's got a lot of tools that could be helpful, and maybe he'll bring in a new approach. And that's exactly what happened. He brought in a new approach along with his collaborator. They worked together and succeeded after much effort and proving the conjecture by Duffin and Schaefer. James Maynard was recognized by the most prestigious prize just this year. He was awarded the Fields Medal for his work in analytic number theory. He has many remarkable achievements, but among these many remarkable achievements is the, his proof of the Duffin and Schaefer conjecture. Looking back over the long history of Diophantine approximation, what one sees is that there was a result from outside the field of Diophantine approximation, something in analysis, very much connected to integration theory. And in fact, LeBeg introduces measure theory in large part to introduce a new measure theory called LeBeg measure theory, the point of which was to overcome certain problems in analysis due to the 
insufficiencies of the previous theories of integration, one in particular due to Riemann. LeBeg, I believe, had no idea that his theory of measure would connect in any way to Diophantine approximation, yet it not only did it influence it, it transformed it. That's really interesting how these different areas of mathematics will influence each other in surprising ways and you develop something and you have no idea where other people are going to go with it. It's amazing and it's one of the most impressive things about mathematics that fields which seem so far apart, sometimes due to an insight or due to a new theory, can combine in new and fruitful ways. Thank you so much, Joseph, for joining us. This has been a real pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you, Carol. We'd love to hear from you. If you have something you'd like to share on the air or a suggestion for a guest for a future show, leave a message at anchor.fm slash theartofmathematics with hyphens or email me at cjacobi at jacobiconsulting.com. And if you'd like to learn how to get answers from data, check out my class at excelfordecisionmakers.com. See you next month. Thanks for listening. 